For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let me pray. Lord, I am humbled once again by this word, uh, this, this passage that Paul writes about in Galatians that connects to what took place on the cross, this profound mystery, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the cross, the mystery of the gospel as it is worded throughout the New Testament. Lord, would we, will we ever be able to comprehend all that happened on the cross? Lord, I know that our minds are finite and we can only understand small, finite things and only understand what you allow us to understand. But Lord, there is a great mystery that took place on the cross. A mystery of substitution, a mystery of exchange, a mystery of one holy divine being, namely your Son, who took on flesh, uh, a finite flesh, and suffered in it, and exchanged his excellencies, his holiness, righteousness, his blessings, with that of a curse, sin, and separation. God, these terms make very little sense. This is supernatural. Would we see it as supernatural? Would we be moved by the supernatural? Would your spirit uh, come and deeply challenge us to see the weight of our sin and the weight of the glory and the holiness of Christ hung on the tree at Calvary? Lord, would we see his holiness in the midst of that? That although taking on the guilt of sin, the curse of sin, the separation of sin. He was holy while hanging on that tree. Move our hearts, Lord, to be drawn ever closer to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are here on a Friday because we in our country have the blessing of being able to celebrate Uh, with a public holiday, uh, Jesus dying on the cross and on Sunday raising to life. This is a profound privilege that each year our country stops, although it may not stop for the same reason we stop, it stops nonetheless. And we get to take a day off to remember the centerpiece of the whole of human history, the cross 
the salvation of man and the resurrection of our King. This is what Easter is all about. It's the climax of the Christian story. The Old Testament waiting and longing for the Messiah to accomplish what only he could do. The Old Testament, a long history of a wayward people, a nation called Israel and a God uh, and God sending unstable, unprepared, unwilling, insufficient, sinful heroes throughout that whole story. And, and this longing, longing for something better, longing for a better hero. These heroes of the Old Testament came with three different titles. They were called prophets, priests and kings. These three roles were vital to the Israelite daily life. We see that these three roles were so unique that no, uh, none of them or no one person had all three of them in themselves. And when they tried to, when a king tried to be a priest, terrible things happened. Or when the king tried to be a prophet, terrible things would take place. We know that these roles were given to different men throughout history and the kings were sent to God's people to lead them and to judge them, to say who did, to praise who did what was right and to condemn what was wrong. The prophets came and spoke forth the word of God, often condemnation, often speaking directly to the kings. And the priest was put in this position to mediate between the sinful man and a holy God, yet they themselves was sinful. We see in the midst of the story of the Old Testament, all of these kings failing, all of the prophets failing, all of the priests failing. They were insufficient. They were often unwilling. They were sinful, although seen often as heroes. Let's think for a moment of the great King David, who fought for a country's freedom and then got complacent and lazy instead of going off to war with his soldiers, which he normally would, he stayed home. And while at home, sees a woman. And while there, takes this woman and sleeps with her. And then finds out it is one of his soldiers who is at wars, at war, war his wife. He tries to lie and cover it up. That doesn't work, so he puts him on the front line and has him murdered. A king, a failing king, yet seen as a hero throughout the Old Testament. If we look at Elijah, the greatest probably prophet in the whole of the Old Testament, Elijah was speaking forth in a time of great uncertainty. Only uh, 700 people still were worshipping God in the whole of the known world. And Elijah freaks out. He's the one who's meant to speak the word of God to a corrupt generation, freaks out and goes and hides in a cave. Or if we look at a priest, the first priest, Aaron. Aaron, who is appointed the priest of Israel. Let's think about what he did. He was the one who gathered all the gold and built for Israel a golden calf because Moses hadn't come back down from a hill. He is the one that God chooses to make priest over the people and it's his sons that will follow in his line. And his sons straight away, the first sons of his, uh, his that become priests, make an unlawful sacrifice and they're consumed by fire. Prophet, priest, king, name them in the scripture. There will be an insufficiency. There will be something that is not sufficient for the role of king, prophet and priest. None of them could do all three. No one was worthy. 
And at the end of the Old Testament, we're left with this deafening silence that all human help is insufficient. 400 years from when the Old Testament ends to when the Gospels begin, there is nothing from God, no prophet, no king, and no priest for them. And it's silence. A silence that screams an insufficiency of human help. And then Jesus comes. And in his life and ministry, he teaches as the greatest prophet of all time. In John, it tells us that he is the very word of God, which is what prophets were to do, to teach the word of God, to speak the word of God. Jesus himself was God's word in human flesh. And we see at the cross of Christ, him take the place of the greater high priest who not sacrifices, who doesn't sacrifice bulls and the blood of animals, but his own blood is shed for the sins of his people. And in the, in the resurrection and the ascension, we see the conquering king triumphing over his enemies, putting them under his feet and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, awaiting for the day when his kingdom will come in full. In Jesus, there is a sufficiency that is not found in any other human. In Jesus, there is a completion that is not found in any other human. There is an obedience, there's a holiness, there's a glory that is not found in anyone else, for he was with God before the creation of the world, and he is God is what we see in John 1. All these heroes throughout the Old Testament leave us with a hunger and a desire for a greater hero. They are a foreshadow of Jesus. They are not sufficient, but they are to shadow and push us to think more about Christ. So when we read the Old Testament, we don't put ourselves in the place of David or Elijah or Isaiah or any of these kings, prophet, priests or kings, but rather we're in the place of the wayward Israel. We're in the place of the rebellious child. And Jesus is in the place of the better King David, the better priest Aaron and the better prophet Elijah. At Easter... We celebrate the victory. We celebrate the tragedy that Christ had to die for a a human race, a rebellious human race. We look at the weight of the exchange that took place on the cross. And on Sunday, we celebrate and with joy declare and exalt Christ, the King of Kings. I want us to unpack a little more of what happened to Christ on the cross from this passage in Galatians while picturing and understanding all that went on in that John's gospel. And Paul writing to a church which is uh, under great uh, struggle with some heretical teachers coming in and these heretical teachers are teaching and saying that it's Jesus plus the law. You need both in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And Paul we know is firm on this. It's Christ and Christ alone. That it's through the faith and belief and trust in the work of Christ that we are saved. And this is one of his arguments in the six chapters of Galatians of what it means to, to, to trust in Christ and Christ alone. Starting in verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. What Paul is using to argue here is the book of Deuteronomy. Now Deuteronomy is the fuller, expanded copy of the Ten Commandments. It is the full law. So from Genesis to Deuteronomy, we see this uh, law written from God, and Deuteronomy is the, the fullness of that. It's, it's sort of the expanded edition. And what we see there in chapters 27 and 28, uh, if you are obedient, these are what you will receive. And if you are disobedient, this is what you will receive. In particular, the passage he's actually directly, or the verse he's directly quoting is uh, Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And it says in Deuteronomy, and the whole congregation said, Amen. That means they all agreed with this statement. Now we've got a group of people coming in and saying that it's by the law that you are saved as well as Christ. And Paul says that is not true. In fact, that is so not true that you are actually cursed if you trust in the law. You're under a weight of a curse. You're under a, a, a punishment that says, if you believe that you can be sanctified and made right by the law, you are foolish. And in fact, you're under a curse. So he's teaching to these false teachers is saying, you're, you're teaching the exact opposite. If you think you can be, if you think you can achieve righteousness by the law and come into the presence of God, You're wrong and you're contradicting your very word that you teach, Deuteronomy. He uses this word, cursed, is those under the law. So it means if we're under the law, what that means is that we're trying to achieve the law. And he says here that everyone who doesn't do or everyone who doesn't obey all of the law is cursed. Not some of the law. All of the law. That means if we live under the law of God, we have to fulfill every bit of it or we are cursed. And we know from what the Bible teaches, that the whole of humanity therefore is cursed. Because the whole of humanity is under the law and the whole of humanity has broken not one command, but all of the commands. This word curse, we don't really understand it in our day and age. I think Harry Potter and things like that have sort of uh, made the word seem a bit comical. But the Bible, if we're going to understand biblical terms, we need to look at a definition from the Scripture. And the best way we can do that is by seeing how the Scripture uses it. Well, since Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 27 and 28, that is the place we should really look. And in this section, he's gone through previously, he stated the law, and now he says, there are two mountains. Mount Mount Gerizim, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ibal. And the two mountains represent blessing and curses. Mount Gerizim is the mount of blessing and Mount Ibal is the mount of curses. And he says, Those who do not live under the law, those who are in disobedience, are on Mount Ebal. And he says, those who live in obedience are on Mount Gerizim. This is the definition that Paul puts in... This is the the, uh, 
the standard that Moses puts in place in Deuteronomy. Separating two different mountains of those who are obedient and those who are. Now, of course, the whole of the human race is cursed because we're all under the law and have not fulfilled the law. And that means that we're all on Mount Ebal, the cursed mountain. But what does it actually mean to be cursed? Well, in Numbers, also part of the books of the law, Numbers 6, 24 to 20, uh, sorry, Numbers 6, 24 to 26, gives us a description of what it means to be blessed, which helps us know that if it's, uh, if there's a mountain of blessing and a mountain of curse, cursing, then that means curses are the opposite of being blessed. So in the scriptures, a curse is the opposite of being blessed by God. You're either blessed by God or you're cursed by God, and all of humanity is cursed by God because they have not obeyed the law. Now in Numbers twenty uh, Numbers six twenty four. The reason this passage is so helpful is it's actually a Hebrew poem, and the way it's written is each line clarifies the line before it. So if we don't understand the first line, we can look to the second, and if we don't understand the third, we can uh, the second we can look to the third. So it says this: The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So, according to the scriptures, to be blessed, and from this poem, to be blessed means that the Lord keeps us near to him. The Lord's face shines on us. To be blessed or to have a blessing means we have been drawn near to God, brought close to God, have the love and peace and grace of God surrounding us. Therefore, to be cursed means to be cut off, abandoned, separated. It gives us the image of the Garden of Eden and chapter 3 where God separates them out of the Garden of Eden. They are cut off from the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of goodness. They are cut off from where God's presence dwells. R.C. Sproul rewrote Numbers 6 in the opposite, in the cursed language. And it says, May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back on you and remove his peace from you forever. There's a heavy, weighty way of looking at this idea of being cursed. And if that is the case, that is the place of all of humankind. The whole of creation on Mount Ebal, abandoned, cut off. The Lord has kept us in darkness rather than in the light of his faith. We're under judgment rather than grace. He has turned his back on us rather than turned to us. We have no peace. And that is forever more. Forever more for the cursed under the law. If we stop there, and if that's where the Old Testament ends, if there was no New Testament, this is the reality of human race. Everyone in the Old Testament was waiting for something better than what the priests could provide. All the priests could provide was the blood of animals and the sacrifice of flour and things like this. 
It was insufficient and it was not enough. And if the Old Testament ended here, this is our description. We are cursed, cut off, abandoned. The Lord's turned his back. We're in darkness. We're under judgment and we have no peace forever. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus, our Lord, that in this passage here, Paul describes it so clearly that Christ became a curse for us. Let's pick it up in verse 12. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is the only means of salvation. Faith alone in Christ alone. That is, we believe, that is faith, and trust, that is faith, in the work of another who isn't on Mount Ibar, who isn't on the cursed mountain. And if the whole of the human race is on the cursed mountain, then the only option we have is someone outside of that who is on Mount uh, Gerizim, whatever it was, the Mount of Blessing uh, coming off that mountain and onto Mount Ebal, onto the cursed mountain, so that he may help and save and redeem those people. Christ Jesus himself becomes a curse. Christ redeems us, that means restores us, takes us from the place of Ebal, puts us on the place of blessing by becoming the curse. This should rattle us to the core that our Creator would take on our curse. And He had to take on our curse because it is an abomination for God to justify the wicked. If He just excused us and moved us from the cursed mountain and put us onto the Mount of Blessing, then we would see that God is not just. But God had to pour out His wrath. And we see in the beautiful portrait of the cross, if you read from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and read the ends of each of the books, you'll see the image of a woven together picture of Christ on the cross. And he makes so many different statements, seven, I believe, statements while hanging on the cross. And one of them is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ Jesus hangs on a tree in the place of the cursed. Those who hang on the tree are cursed, wearing the full weight of this curse. Therefore, if Christ is hanging on this tree in the full weight of the curse and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is sitting in the place of the cursed. He has been abandoned by God. God has now put him in darkness. He is under the judgment and wrath of God with no grace. The Lord has turned his back on him. He is not in a moment or a place of peace. Why is this such a terrible moment? Why is this such a weighty moment for Christ? And for us to ponder and think about. Because Christ has only ever known the place of of blessing. He is the blessed one. 
In eternity past, before the world was created, there was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God, the Father, and the Son, He were in, in each other's presence. The Father's face shone upon Him. He has only ever known the glory of the Father. He's only ever known the closeness of the Father. He's only ever known what it means to be in the place of blessing. And now, in this moment, on the cross, He is cursed, cut off, abandoned in darkness, under judgment, wearing the full weight. The full cup of God's wrath. Micah tells us that in the, in the prophet Micah, he says that God will trample our sins underfoot. For him to trample our foot, sins underfoot, he does not do that just by casting our sin aside and trampling on that. He's either trampling on us or trampling on Jesus. And when Jesus took on our sin, God trampled him under his foot. He was in the place of the cursed. He was in the place of someone who has broken the whole law. Abandoned. Cut off. And it's in this moment we see the beauty of Christ as our faithful high priest. The priest's role was to be in the temple. And as you would sin or make a transgression, you would come to the temple and you would bring whatever uh, you needed to bring. So depending on your transgression, depended on what you would bring. Maybe bulls, lambs, maybe flour, depending on what it was, you, you had a, a certain amount that you had to bring. It's all in the book of Leviticus. Now the priest would have to make a sacrifice for himself that he was not holy and he had sins, so he would make a sacrifice for himself, and then he would make another sacrifice for the sin offering, whoever committed that, and he would slit its throat, and he would take the blood, and he would sprinkle the blood over the altar. Sacrifices were always made in the face of God. And what we see is that the penalty of sin is death. And if the penalty of sin is death, what we either have is the human dying or this animal dying. So the animal's blood is spilt in the face of God. And instead of God looking upon this sinner and pouring out his wrath there, he looks upon the lamb or the bull or whatever the offering is and looks upon that death and is satisfied. Now the problem we have is our sin is infinite. Our sin is against a holy God and holy means utterly unique Transcended, that means our sin against the holy God is an infinite sin, so the blood of animals would not appease the wrath of God forever. But Christ comes. Holy, holy, holy is He. He needs no sacrifice to enter into the holy of holies, for He alone belongs in the holy of holies. He doesn't walk in with the blood of animals. To pour it upon the altar. No, he walks in with his own blood. Righteous blood. Holy blood. Set apart blood. One who has fulfilled the law. And instead of sprinkling the blood on the altar, he pours out and covers us, you and me, in his blood. And he covers us with his holy blood for an infinite amount of time. And as we said, a sacrifice was always made in the face of God. Therefore, God looks, the Father looks upon not the sinner anymore, but the holy, righteous blood of Christ that is poured out 
over them and covers them. He doesn't see the need for death. He doesn't see the need for the sinner to die and wear the punishment because Christ has died and the punishment covers that sinner. So right now we stand in the place of holy and righteous. And this is what Paul finishes in verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What is the result? Blessing. An exchange, a substitution of Christ to Mount Ebal, the Mount of Curses, and us to the Mount of Blessing. He moves us. He causes us to go across to the other mountain. He, we don't elevate ourselves. He elevates us. So now Numbers 6, 24 to 26 is for us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is for the blessed. That is for us. We now are kept by God. His face now looks upon us. We are under His grace. We are lifted up. He's turning His face towards us. He gives us peace forevermore. That means His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, that once dwelled in the temple now dwells in you. The blood of Jesus is worthy, that it covers us forever, that the Spirit that could never dwell in an unholy unholy place, now dwells oh so near. He dwells in us. He dwells in you. His face shines upon us as if we are his holy child. Peace with God forevermore. That means all of Christ's sunly attributes, all of his sunly attributes, his blessing, that is his nearness to God, his righteousness are ours. Ours to claim, ours to hold on to. It's our status. And to walk in a place that says, my sin is too bad. I've done too much wrong. Is blasphemous to God. Because of the cost of what was given is so worthy that it outweighs the sin. Christ is so worthy, his holiness is so great, his uniqueness is so great that it outweighs all of our sin. So that we can no longer say, I'm not good enough. He knows we're not good enough. Christ is good enough and we're covered by his blood. We stand in next to the greatest mediator we could ever have. The one who only knew blessing but took on curse. We only knew the curse, but now we take on blessing. We deserve everything Christ got, but we don't get any of it. Rather, we get all that we don't deserve. His blessing. This is a profound mystery. The mystery of Christ, all that took place on the cross. I've come to realize that I will never fully grasp all that took place on that cross. That there are still things yet to be revealed in heaven of what Christ accomplished for us. This is a profound mystery. 
a supernatural work. That inwardly we would be covered by the blood of Christ so that the Father God could look upon us and draw us near. This is our priestly king. And on Sunday we'll look at his victory in conquering his enemies and the ascension of sitting at the throne at the right hand of God, awaiting the time when all his enemies will be underneath his feet. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you know that we're not worthy. I thank you that you know the depths of our heart. And it was in this knowing, it was in the complete fullness of your knowledge that you would ransom and redeem us a wayward disobedient people Lord I pray for our small part of your church here, just a tiny bit of your body that we would grasp just a glimpse a bit more of the mystery this supernatural work of blessing and curses being exchanged, of sin and righteousness being exchanged of holy and unholy being exchanged disobedient and obedient being exchanged, Lord how How can this be? What grace. You are worthy of glory. Let your name be known throughout our lives. You're worthy of praise. Let this motivate us to pursue more of you, Lord. The Christ, the Holy Christ, hanging in the place of the cursed. Lord Christ on Calvary, would he be our motivation for holiness, our desire to pursue a fullness of you, a a deeper understanding of you, a longing for you. What a gift, Lord, to be in this place, to have this time together, although separated, but we we should be grateful that right now we have a day day off to just celebrate, grieve, worship, remember. Lord, what a gift. We love you. We praise you. All honour and glory be to Christ, Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen.